Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, and I'm checking to make sure that I hit the record button. Looks like we did. So let's go ahead and get started. I have three students here with me today and a background observer who you might hear through the podcast depending on whether he laughs or not. Weston, good to see you here in the background. He waved if you couldn't hear that on, on uh, the microphone. Three other students as well. Uh, we've got two stars of the show, and this is going to be a podcast series, so we'll introduce one today primarily and then the other next time and then we'll uh, kind of go from there. So let's start with introductions. Uh, we'll start with you, Amanda. Tell us uh, who you are and um, what your role is today. So my name is Amanda. I am a third year medical student and today I will be discussing some of the board relevant questions. And principles that show up on the shelf exam I think, right? All right, and uh, let's see, let's go ahead and have Cheyenne go next. I'm Cheyenne. I'm also a third year medical student. We're med students with Rocky Vista University. I will be discussing some of the research articles that we have today. All right. Looking at prevalence primarily, right? Primarily yeah. prevalence. And Hope. You're the, the introduced star of the show today. Yes. So Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I'm Hope. I'm also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista. Um, so I actually want to go into family medicine. So psych is very big in that, especially where I'm from. I'm from rural South Dakota, so most people don't even, we don't really even have psychiatrists, so being a PCP, this is um, really important. So it's, it's true, I think I get more advertisements for jobs in North Dakota and South Dakota than anywhere else in the country. Although the Florida jobs are enticing because I think just like the Dakotas, there are great beaches in Florida. <laughs> Um, can't speak to the beaches in Florida, but South Dakota is pretty great. So It's awesome. Tell me your favorite part of South Dakota. Hmm, the Corn Palace. Where's the Corn Palace? Mitchell. What's, what's the Corn Palace? It's this huge building that we played basketball in. Um, my college played there, and they do murals every year out of corn husks. So I think last year was um, military. So on the outside of the building, they had Navy, Air Force, and it's all done out of Corn cobs. That's actually pretty cool. Now, uh, very, very quickly, just to do a little bit more of an introduction, my understanding is that you were a shooting guard. I was, yes. Can you tell me how often you passed the ball as a shooting guard? If I was open, never. <laughs> was there ever a time you weren't open? Oh, yes. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Huh. I had my doubts about that. I kind of thought that you were always open if you had the ball. Nope. All right. Enough. Uh, enough teasing. And if you watch, um, if you were to watch Hope shoot, I can say that it it is as smooth as Ray Allen when she's shooting left-handed. So uh, that's her opposite hand too. So uh, the topic today is uh, I, I had somebody who is listening to the podcasts who said they were interested in learning more about the overlap between schizoaffective disorder and OCD. And I had started putting together some articles along those lines, and the two of you said you were interested in picking that up. Um, now, it, it's a huge topic. I think by the time the two of you looked at the folder, there were 35-something articles in there, and I think uh, you might have stayed up too late one night trying to get through all of them for today. Does that sound right? Sounds about right. And uh, I had to stop and apologize for not explaining things very well. Does that also sound right? Sounds perfect. <laughs> Good. So, so what I wanted to do was just have a discussion um, 
about how often we see overlapping schizophrenia and OCD. Now the original request was about schizoaffective disorder and OCD. We had a tough time, I think, finding really good data on just any psychosis and OCD, and we'll speak to that more than anything else. Now to get that started though, to get us rolling and to have the high yield shelf exam stuff right up front, we've got Amanda here to help us with that. Amanda, what I, I think you focused on OCD, is that right? Or did you focus on schizophrenia types of questions? I actually did a little bit of both. All right, do you want to give us some highlights of things that we want to be thinking about when we're looking at questions about either schizophrenia or OCD on the shelf exam? Principles that pop up. So what's really important for both of these topics is understanding the timeline of presentation. So how long has the patient had the symptoms? How old is the patient at presentation? And then just really identifying the major symptoms that are appearing in, this, in the presentation. So for schizophrenia, most of your questions are probably going to start out with someone in their early 20s, maybe late teens. They've had a change in, in their behavior and a recent decline in functioning. And usually there will be some mention of voices or hallucinations. Now this starts to get tricky when you're considering the timeline. The big thing is that this has to be present for at least six months. Anything earlier than six months and it's considered schizophreniform. And even earlier than that would be something like a brief psychotic disorder. Everything up to one month. Up to one month. So really understanding the timeline is really crucial to making that diagnosis and getting that question right. So once you identify the timeline, the presentation, and some symptoms like delusions, hallucination, disorganized speech, you can really go forward and think about what would be a second order question they could ask with that. And usually those pertain to treatment. So there's things about medication. So there's the first and second generation antipsychotics. And then what the risk factors with those medications are. So first generation medications are the dopamine antagonists. And these put you at risk for things like extrapyramidal symptoms like dystonia, Parkinsonism, and acanthesia. Acanthesia. Thank you. (laughs) Don't worry, you just have to be able to read the question. You don't have to be able to speak it to anyone. (laughs) That's the good thing about these exams. (laughs) Can I I add something here for just a second? So these medications, all medications that treat psychosis have these symptoms the first generation uh, medications are more known for those. It's more likely to happen with those. So we, we have those associations. And, and I think you're gonna talk about some associations that we have with second generation medications. So even though they can cause those problems, they also cause more often another set of problems. That is true, yes. So there are these are the things that they'll probably ask you is what happens when you give these medications. So we spoke about the extrapyramidal symptoms, and then second generation has some anticholinergic symptoms, things like dry mouth, constipation, blurred vision. They also have metabolic syndrome, which is the elevated blood sugar levels, they'll probably show you some labs about that, and some excess body fat. So those are just things to be very aware of. Also in terms of high yield medications, clozapine, if you don't know it, start learning it now. (laughs) If you don't learn it for the shelf exam, learn it me, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Impress your attending. <laughs> so is I think that was a perfect introduction about things you need to know about schizophrenia. Did you have more about schizophrenia that you wanted to share? Because if not, I'm going to talk you into holding off on the OCD stuff until another podcast. 
I think just the last thing would be that medication is our only treatment. There could also be CBT and family therapy as a good option. And family therapy, I want to be a little bit more specific. That's family psychoeducation, if I remember correctly. Yes. Okay. And, and that seems to be something that uh, has a lot of very good data behind it. Sometimes you'll see CBT as CBT-P or just CBTP as well. You'll also sometimes see questions about ACT teams, which are teams in the community where, uh, where our patients don't necessarily have to show up at the clinic, instead the clinic goes to the patient, and uh, occasionally that's a, a question that comes up. Any other high yield things that we should know about schizophrenia? If you see something with a late winter, early spring, that could come up as well, but besides that, I think we covered it. Yeah, so those risk factors for schizophrenia, I think we talked about those in a lecture, and I think I mentioned that it's like one of the weakest risk factors, <laughs> and just the one that shows up on all the shelf exams, right? Mm -hmm. And you've seen that in your practice questions, I think, does that sound right? And it's winter, spring? Late winter, early spring. All right. It's what's, I can't ever remember. I'm glad I have students help me keep track of some of those things. Very, very well done. Um, sorry to put you on the spot and tell you you're now committed to another podcast, but at least most of the work's done for it, right? Hopefully. We'll see what I can pull up. Very, very well done. All right. So I'm, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about prevalence was... Um, it seemed like we had a bunch of articles that talked about prevalence. That was really the first thing. And one of the questions I wanted to ask the two of you is, why is prevalence important? And I'm not sure I ever came up with a good answer myself, um, other than one. And, and Cheyenne's over there going, ask me, ask me. <laughs> well, from all of the articles that we've read so far, I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is that if you have patients that are exhibiting uh, one of the schizophrenia um, spectrum disorders, it is important for you to try to see if they might also have comorbid OCD at the same time. Uh, some of these papers are stating numbers up to one out of seven patients might actually have OCD in, a, in addition to their schizophrenia spectrum disorder. Yeah, uh, so, so what is it called when you reveal the, the answer too early? Uh, um plot reveal, whatever it is. <laughs> so, so you said one out of seven, which is about 15%, right, of our patients with schizophrenia. I think there was a Canadian study that said up to 50% that we saw, but we didn't find when we actually read the articles. All sorts of numbers out there. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about some of the articles specifically, but I think some of the other things that were mentioned were that OCD responds pretty well to antidepressant medications, and that OCD on top of uh, schizophrenia spectrum symptoms is pretty torturous for the patient. It adds an extra layer of difficulty, I think. Yep. So, so I think in this case, um, I, normally I give a take-home point at the very end, and I actually wrote this down. The take-home point for prevalence, the way I'm reading this, is we should probably be assessing more closely for OCD diagnosis and OCS obsessive compulsive symptoms in our patients with schizophrenia to make sure that we're adequately treating the full spectrum of symptoms. So with that in mind, I think, um, Cheyenne, you had two or three articles. We, I think we found six, seven, eight, nine articles, something like that. We all kind of uh, read different uh, articles, skimmed other articles. And I think, um, do you want to start with the, and I don't know how to say this, the HM article, or is there another article you'd prefer to start with? I think the HM was one you put directly into the into the files, right, the Google Drive files. 
Maybe not. Oh, um, yeah. So it's the one that's written there at the top of your list so, that you were just at. Yeah, so <laughs> I wouldn't... I, I thought you were saying HM as in... H, H -M? Hotel. Yeah, Mike. Oh. No. <laughs> For no. some reason. No, like the, like the place you might yeah. close at? I, I've been pronouncing it as Akeem. Akeem. Oh, well, the Akeem article oh, then. Yes, yeah. so uh, Akeem et al. is a metadata analysis of the prevalence of anxiety disorders in schizophrenia. And the biggest take home uh, with this article as, as well as a few other articles is that the prevalence rates of the anxiety disorders in schizophrenic patients, patients or patients, sorry, You're my good. bad, in patients with schizophrenia is, is much higher than that of which uh, they sample within the community. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, the data is very heterogeneous uh, genius between all of the studies and so this paper is taking a look at why there might be so much variation between the numbers. Because yeah, I think there are numbers that range anywhere from zero to just about 50 percent. Yeah, yeah I think that like I said I think that was the Canadian study. So um, a couple of things stood out to me in this paper. Were there any things that stood out to you in the paper you want to comment on? Uh, if not I've got a couple of thoughts about it and you can maybe comment or ask me questions however you want to do that. Yeah, I think you t mentioned this the other day uh, with us, is that through the years we have adapted our DSM, the, the manual for psychiatry, and originally um, they had a hierarchy rules, so certain conditions couldn't be diagnosed at the same time as another condition, so one would trump the other. And so uh, in the past, it was underestimated how many patients with anxiety disorders such as OCD uh, also had schizophrenia or vice versa. And so that can contribute a lot to the heterogeneity in the variation of the, the numbers. I thought that was really interesting because I didn't have a sense of the hierarchy. I think that was a DSM-2 issue and I think it started to change in the DSM-3 where they started to allow comorbidity. I think there were a couple of articles that commented on hierarchy and how after that change of the DSM people started looking at, um, at these conditions that may run together so to speak. I thought it was also interesting one of the um, one of the articles I looked at, and I think it might have been the Kessler article, and that was the one I told you I didn't want you guys to read. I'd already loaded you guys up enough. The Kessler article is uh, the National Comorbidity Survey. There was a, a group of uh, the, the United States Congress in the uh, late 70s said they wanted to get a sense of mental health in the community. So they put together what's called the National Comorbidity Survey, um, which went and it, uh, interviewed, oh gosh, let me see if I can find this somewhere. I want to say about 8,000 people, and they came away with diagnoses based on the DSM-3 criteria at that time. Then they had a, a National Comorbidity Resurvey, which is a re-interview of about 5,000 people. This was 2001 to 2002. The original survey was 90 to 92, and uh, that was 5,000. And what they tried to do is have a like a timeline, what happens over time with these numbers. And so they were trying to, to look at not just prevalence numbers, but I think they were also trying to see stability of symptoms and also um, durability of the diagnosis. And then there was uh, 
National Comorbidity Replication Study, and I think that happened a few years after the re-interview. That's uh, where I think I found most of my data on anxiety and depression. And then, so, so that's kind of like the baseline. If you want to know usually some of the nuanced numbers of, of who has what mental health condition, uh, usually you go to the National Comorbidity Survey or the National Comorbidity Replication Survey, and there are obviously some difficulties with the changes in the DSMs. But then there's also another uh, survey that we've talked about. This is one that was in one of the previous podcasts. We talked about the NSDUH. Uh, this is uh, through SAMHSA, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health, SHA. <laughs> I always forget the abbreviations on this, and what they do is they go through and look at treatment, prevention, and uh, symptoms of use in adolescents and adults. And just to give you a sense of how big this is, they do, they, they're going to interview about 70,000 people this year, and they do that every year. So it's a very, very large survey. I don't think they have the same ki kind of granular data like comorbidity types of things like the National Comorbidity Survey has, which is just the big screenshot, um, uh, but they have a lot of great information. And, and if you're very interested in it, you can see what the field guide looks like. So we're, they're planning, or they, they had the planning data up for the 22 survey. They just barely published the 20 survey. The 21 survey is probably being um, sifted through and, and getting ready for publish, uh, which should happen by January, I suspect. So these are the big studies that give us our baseline numbers. And now what we're looking at, and, and what you're looking at with the Akeem article, hopefully I'm saying that right this time, is uh, sort of a look at all comers. So if we have people that are interested in the overlap of OCD and schizophrenia, what does that look like? And they looked at, I think, 30, let's see, they had 4,032 total patients. They found a, a range of somewhere between 7 to 17%, mean is about 12%, but 34 studies, right? Now, I thought it was really interesting because they were looking, at, this was a meta-analysis looking at OCD, I'm sorry, not OCD, at schizophrenia and anxiety, right? And anxiety then, disorders, yeah. And so they pulled out different studies so they had 34 studies that had OCD and schizophrenia, and that's the part we've taken out, but they had a lot of studies they were looking at. I thought a really interesting follow-up to this article was the one you pulled out, Hope, mm -hmm. which was the Sweats article. Well, that was oh, was that also mine. yours? Yes. Nice, my bad. So tell me about the Sweats article. So the Sweats article is a, a little bit updated. It's done in 2014, I believe, and they also were looking at some of the reasons why there might be some variation between the numbers. And in the Akeem article, uh, they determined that multiple variables were responsible for some of the differences in the prevalence rates that we're seeing. Um, but they were unable to really attach uh, any significant meaning to that due to the limited number of articles that had specific enough details on the way that they conducted their research or anything of that sort. I was also under the impression that in a lot of cases they said, hey, this could be the explanation for the differences in data, but we don't think oh, so. And then they would say, but this could be, but, but we don't think so. And at the end of the article I was left with the idea of, so what is it? A common thing I noticed about these articles was that the limitations, um, paragraph was, was pretty large. So you kind of got to take these with a grain of salt. 
I think we're going to talk about that yeah. salt just a little bit more after we finish up this uh, sweats article, right? Because I think you're going to talk about the salt a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so other things in the sweats article. So actually, if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump one more time back to the Akeem article. But in the Akeem article, I think the thing that they came to the most agreement on was that in future studies about the comorbidity of OCD and schizophrenia, or any of the anxiety disorders in schizophrenia, was that we needed to be more specific in our testing and analysis and patient characteristics, all the things that can be responsible for so, so much variation in the data. And I think that has been uh, addressed a little bit more going into the SWETS article, uh, in which they had found that the prevalence of OCD in, in uh, patients with schizophrenia was around 12.3% and adjusted for uh, meta-regression was about 13.6%. Uh, in contradiction, or in addition to that, the OCS prevalence, OCS is uh, obsessive compulsive symptoms, was around 30.7%. So uh, those are pretty high numbers. Those are very high numbers. So that's a little more than one in 10, right? I think you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. about one in seven. Somebody did. So I want to I want to add one other thing right here, and and I liked the way you talked about the studies, or the way that the diagnosis was made. Actually, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a moment. But but there's a a range of ways that the diagnosis can be made, and a range of ways the study can be built. And I think as as we looked at these articles, if you were to say, oh, we have two meta analyses that have taken all the data, they've sifted through it in a way that makes this a really good article, maybe, um, on in some very reputable, um, Schizophrenia Bulletin is as reputable a source as there is for research on schizophrenia, so, so we're in a good place, we have, this should be golden, right? But then we started looking at some of the articles themselves, and I'm not as convinced, even though that number of about 13% might make sense, when we start looking at the individual articles, maybe this these articles that were included in that, and we've looked at a handful of those, maybe we should even be a little skeptical of this number, right? So um, after the two meta-analysis articles, let's talk about some of the articles that were actually included in the meta-analysis, and where are you starting, Hope? Um, the So obsessive compulsive disorder in patients with first episode schizophrenia. All right, I want to just make sure I've got the right article. This is the Poyarovsky article, and this was published in 1999. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, this is one of the articles that they used in the Akeem, uh, and I think they also used it in the Sweats article too, right? They did. These were both, this is an article that's referenced to determine what percentage of people have OCD and schizophrenia. Yeah, and I think the first line of that article, it said 7.8 to 47% of patients with schizophrenia also have OCD symptoms. So right out of the gate, I told myself, wow, that is uh, it's a pretty large range. So now, Was that symptoms or diagnosis? I missed nope, that. No, symptoms. Symptoms, okay. Symptoms and that actually makes a little more sense, right, yeah. if you start reading. Yeah. But, but it might be that the diagnosis is on the low end of that and symptoms is on the high end, right? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. So this is the Poyarovsky article. Yep. And how did they how did they get their patient population on this one? Did you see that? Yeah. So they um, to qualify for this study, they had to be drug naive or less than 12 weeks of taking lifetime antipsychotics, 
um, I'll talk about that a little later why that is, and patients that were excluded were if they had another major mood disorder um, or it was secondary to acute intoxication or withdrawal or you know, any mental illness that in, could um, induce a psychotic episode. And then they went on to define um, OCD and schizophrenia and they ended up with 50 patients, um, 37 had schizoph were diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, nine schizophreniform, and then four schizoaffective disorders. So they kind of lumped them together. And um, seven of those met the DSM-4 criteria for actual OCD, but a lot of them had compulsions, obsessions, so they had the symptoms, but they just didn't meet um, all the, the qualifications for the disorder. If I remember right, if my notes are right, I should say, because I would never remember this, I think what they, and this is a, a, a hospital in Israel, um, 97 to 98, and uh, I think they ended up with a total of 50 patients that they used in analysis, seven had OCD, so 14% of a population who's admitted to a hospital at one place, Yep. and these are the numbers we're relying on for our percentages in the meta-analysis, right? So mm -hmm. you can see some of the challenges in this. It's a, it's a population that only requires hospitalization. We don't know if OCD combined with schizophrenia makes the condition more severe or not. I think they made the case that basically everybody that gets hospitalized is about of equal severity. So I don't know that that tells us very much, right? And see, that's one of the limitations is that it's easier to conduct studies on people who are hospitalized and that's usually your patients who are severely ill whereas if you go they've tried to do some studies in the community and the numbers are substantially lower but a lot of these patients still have OCD symptoms so so I like that study a lot it gave me a little bit of insight into the numbers that are being collated into the meta-analysis right it tells me that um, there are limitations to the numbers let's go to the next study that you have okay um, so the next one was uh, obsessions and compulsions in the community, prevalence, interference, help-seeking, developmental stability, and co-occurring psychiatric conditions. Is this uh, Kruger or is this somebody else? Kaya Han? This is the Fulana et al. 2009. I think I glanced at this one. Go ahead and talk yeah, to me about I didn't the Fulana love this one that much either but this um, kind of delineated the two so they actually interviewed patients at 11 26 and 32 and 11 is pretty young. oh yeah this yeah. is the Dunedin study or yeah. Dunedin Dunedin we actually looked this up on Google we had a group before that used data out of the Dunedin study and we didn't know how to say it so we had went on Google and clicked the button and it said Dunedin so this is the Dunedin study where they have the longitudinal series right yes so mm -hmm. 11 26 and 32 and at 11, it was showing that a lot of these kids have symptoms, OC, that they have OCS. If they met one out of, I think, four criteria, then they were diagnosed with having, you know, the symptoms, not actually OCD. And then they followed them over the years, and it was shown that people who presented with these symptoms at 11 then had the symptoms at 26 and 32. And at 11, we don't see schizophrenia. Um, it shows up later in the 20s. So it was kind of nice to see, yes, they had these symptoms before schizophrenia, not schizophrenia, and then these symptoms. Because I've read articles that say a lot of these patients who are being treated and on antipsychotics for a long enough time that it's possible that these are inducing or actually exacerbating these OCD symptoms. I think we're actually going to, I know we, I think we're planning on having this be a 20-minute podcast. We're already nearing 30, so that means we might get two more in. If 
but I think one of the podcasts I'm very interested in is uh, this topic of how antipsychotic medications might induce OCD. But, but there's a lot of data that we went through. Even if that is true, we're also aware of a lot of data that suggests that OCD might be a risk factor for schizophrenia. We saw some of that, yes. correct? That, that wasn't the focus of this, and I think it's worth saying that there are two ways about of thinking about some of the data we looked at. One is you, you get a group of people with OCD and figure out how many people have schizophrenia in that group. In a sense, that's what the Dunedin study does, right? And then the other way of looking at it is you get a group of people with schizophrenia and figure out how many people in that group have OCD, right? Mm -hmm. And then maybe we'll talk about one other way in a little bit. So, so that's the Falama article, right? And it suggests that I think OCD rates were about, uh, what, 2% at 32 and 26. Mm -hmm. I, I know that's a, it actually looks like OCD was about 2.3 at 26 and 1.8 at 32, but I don't know what the overlap was. I didn't see that. The overlap between OCD and schizophrenia. Was that in the Dunedin article? Mm -mm. That was just the straight up data yeah. on OCD, right? Yeah, yep. Okay. So, um, we had a couple of other articles. Did either of you see the Kayahan article? Yes. All right, do you want to tell me? I, I think we can s mention this one very briefly. Yeah, so that was the same thing. It said the prevalence of OCS individuals meeting criteria for schizophrenia was 64%, which is a really high number, so. Yeah, and I think they said 30 met OCD diagnosis. Just very, very briefly, we've talked about Akeem, who had everything put together. We've talked about uh, Pyurovsky, who talked about FEP that required hospitalization, so it was only inpatient. Uh, the Kayahan article is a little bit different in that they had patients that either were hospitalized or showed up at what might be a... Uh, almost a specialty clinic or a clinic for people who have schizophrenia and uh, severe and persistent mental illness. And so they have sort of this unique population as well. So it's partially inpatient, partially outpatient. I think they tried to make the case that that was maybe different than some of the other data sets. And then I think the Kruger article, I think you have that in front of you. And I'll just say very, very briefly that they had 76 patients in successive admission and they used a skid to diagnose um, patients and uh, then they used a Y box and I think the final number they had was almost 16% of the patients had schizophrenia. So we have a lot of bounce around that. 13 to 15%, and mostly those are coming through when we're, we're looking at people who are hospitalized. Does that sound right? Yes. All right, so I'm going to add one other article that I didn't uh, give to you guys, and this is follow-up on the National Comorbidity Survey that uh, Kessler, I think, wrote this article. And and this was a very interesting article because this is, this is a tough study, right? We've talked about the different ways we find patients and how we then try and figure out what the prevalence is. So we know a little bit about the prevalence in hospitalized patients with, with schizophrenia and OCD. It's about 15%, right? 13 to 15%. Um, and that might be true of a clinic. Uh, if you look at the Canadian study, that might be different. I think there was an like a intensive outpatient treatment place on one of the review articles that I saw that had uh, a higher number, right? It just, it, it might depend on the population. The Kessler article was very interesting to me because what they did is they took uh, 2,332 people who had screened uh, for possible psychosis, if I understand correctly, 
in that uh, comorbidity replication study. And they had, uh, they called it NAP, which is non-affective psychosis. And they said, hey, it's really, really difficult to identify non-affective psychosis in the community because what happens if somebody walks up to you? I mean, if somebody calls me and says, what's your political affiliation? I might use an expletive, right? And they say, that's odd. That's not uh, one of the recognized political affiliations. I said, odd, <laughs> right? And, and instead, um, that's, that's kind of how it is trying to find people that are struggling with psychosis. Hey, do you hear voices? What? Me? <laughs> right. so, so they had this really interesting way of going about this. What they did is they had some open-ended questions to normalize symptoms of psychosis. And I, and I think it's something along the lines that we do quite often with our patients. We talk about people uh, like, I think Anthony Hopkins has uh, written that he's had symptoms of psychosis. You guys know who that is, right? Oh, he's uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. I think he's a phenomenal actor. I think he was in Thor, one of the Thor movies, maybe. <laughs> Weston's looking it up right now. In any case, uh, that was somebody that more people knew a decade or 15 years ago, but we would find people who have symptoms of psychosis. We say, you know, a lot of people have symptoms of psychosis. There are a lot of people that hear the phone ring. There are people that think they hear the doorbell. Yeah, we all have those experiences, and I suspect that it's something like that. And then what they had to do is they, had, they spent hours reviewing the information that came through, and I don't know if they had live recordings or not, that wasn't clear to me. And after they did that, they decided if somebody actually had a non-affective psychosis or not. Once they found that, and then they used the SCID diagnostic criteria, I think, for OCD, so they, had, uh, they, they did a very careful approach to diagnose psychosis symptoms, and then they had kind of like the background screening stuff and the, and the SCID diagnostic uh, interview, or the structured, SCID, structured something, structured comprehensive diagnostic interview. I have it backwards. I, my students have to correct me on that every single time. But in any case, they used the SCID. They diagnosed uh, OCD. They diagnosed um, anxiety spectrum disorders. And they found something very interesting. They found that patients who have schizophrenia also have a lifetime prevalence of OCD at an odds ratio of 26. So again, an odds ratio is the cases, the number of cases exposed. So how many people had schizophrenia? over the number of people who don't have schizophrenia divided by the people who don't have schizophrenia and don't have OCD and the people who, I'm sorry, I better start it over. In any case, it's the number of people who have OCD and schizophrenia divided by the number of people who have OCD in the community that don't have schizophrenia. And then that is all divided by the number of people who don't have schizophrenia I'm sorry, that don't have OCD and do have schizophrenia over the people who don't have OCD and don't have schizophrenia. And 26 times the rate, right? So if the baseline population rate, I think, is about 2%. I think that's one of the numbers we've come across a couple of times, both in the National Comorbidity Survey and in the Dunedin study. Um, 26 times that rate is a lot higher, right? That puts that number way up there. So I don't, I don't know what the actual numbers are but I know that there are differences in the way that uh, we look at things. So I think this is a pretty good approach to prevalence, right? I, I, I'm just curious where you guys, uh, I'm gonna ask, uh, hope you and Cheyenne to tell me where you think the prevalence for OCD and schizophrenia is. Um, well, it's kind of tough because we're inpatient, so I would say it's, it's pretty high, but then all of these studies say 12 to 13%, so. 
Maybe 12 to 13 percent? Maybe 12 to 13. What are you saying? A lot of these articles talk about the difference between chronically um, diagnosed patients versus acute diagnoses. And so, like Hope said, with inpatient um, like experience, I believe it would be around that 14% mark. However, I think that more studies, we may be able to find more studies on it or more studies need to be done to further look into that. I think that's pretty reasonable. I, I still think my take home of no matter if the percentage is 8% or the percentage is closer to the 50%, I think the take home we all kind of had earlier, uh, I said mine, but I think we all had this, is ask about the symptoms, right? Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a couple other questions that uh, came to my mind during this uh, podcast prep. Why do you think there's a difference in the numbers that's so broad? What's your best guess? Or what was the most compelling argument you saw written about? I would say the Kruger et al. 2000 article is one that I would love to go into more in our future podcasts. And they hypothesized that schizophrenia and OCD might actually be a combined sort of disorder process that we might need to look into and that the symptoms of OCD and the symptoms of schizophrenia sometimes overlap a lot. And so it might be difficult to distinguish the two. Thus, uh, there might be an underreporting of patients who have schizophrenia who also have OCD. I think I'm gonna break that down into two things that you found compelling. First is that there might be a variant of schizophrenia that has that is a biochemical basis for both OCD symptoms and schizophrenia symptoms. In other words, some sort of condition has all of these symptoms. It's not two conditions. It's one that has two sets of symptoms. Does that sound about right? And then I think the second thing you said was, hey, maybe people that are following command hallucinations might actually be, be, uh, be having um, compulsions and not command hallucinations and vice versa. So there might be some diagnostic clarity issues. I think you're saying both those things. Does that sound right? Yes, and this article goes pretty in-depth with it and has quite a few different ideas on how um, future diagnosis of these two disorders might be better classified. Say that last sentence again, how the future diagnosis, how we might change the diagnostic criteria? Correct, okay. yeah. They, they hypothesize that uh, it might be either a schizophrenia subtype uh, or the comorbid condition, as we've been talking about, mm -hmm. or that OCD as a continuum might have schizophrenia plus OCD at the end, at the very severe end of OCD. So exactly the opposite of what I said in a way. So you're saying, so I said schizophrenia may, one of the schizophrenia syndromes may have OCD, but what you're saying is one of the OCD syndromes may have schizophrenia. Correct. So it's like you finally got it. Yay. <laughs> Correct. So they they are between those two hypotheses and um, I think this article would be really great to work into but would probably need a much longer discussion. Yeah, I think there's uh, some some information about that that's kind of interesting. I know that uh, there's some genes that are associated with schizophrenia that might go into that. You're going to say something though. You want to, you're ready. I am. I am ready. So I think the main thing is that in general there's not universally accepted guidelines in the field of psychology right now. 
So like this article I'm looking at right now, it says there's lack of universally accepted guidelines to assess OTD, OCD and schizophrenia. So there's no clearly defined criteria. And I think that's why people are struggling because they do these studies and there's no guidelines to go off of. So they just kind of do their own thing. And I think that's why the prevalence rates are so varied. So let me just make sure I understand this. We've talked about a couple of different things that Cheyenne brought up, but you're saying the, the issue might be that we don't have a standardized way of looking at this or looking for this condition. Yes, because in the past we talked about the hierarchy, you know, schizophrenia, It was that was their main diagnosis. You didn't have another diagnosis if you had schizophrenia. Exactly. Okay. So I there's not good guidelines in place that say, yes, this is schizophrenia plus OCD. And I think that's something they need to work towards in the future. I know that one of the articles that we looked at talked briefly about the idea that um, some of the articles that they saw with higher prevalence rates, I think were smaller studies that used specific diagnostic tools looking exactly for OCD in schizophrenia. The studies where they found higher rates, I think they were looking with general tools that were screening for whatever shows up in a patient population with schizophrenia. And so there might be some differences in how those studies went about uh, trying to sort out the data. And I thought that was a compelling argument. And I also think you're speaking to something even a little bit more difficult, which is if this is a variant of OCD or a variant of schizophrenia, how do we classify it so that we can study it better and, and know it as an entity rather than as two entities or one entity with a comorbidity or so forth, right? Yeah, I've seen maybe a paper hinting at that in the future that combining the two and having it as a separate diagnosis and not combined, um, that might be a thing. So you're so. talking about schizoobsessive disorder? Yes. Because I think we have some articles that actually say that. that I have, funny. yeah, I kept reading, reading schizoobsessive disorder and is that actually a thing? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, Not yet. exactly. So I'll be interested to see if that is in the future. Um, what do you make about the differences in numbers between the case series, the population studies, and the cohort studies? So we have like the Dunedin study, which is a cohort study, I think. We have the case series, which were like the Kruger articles. Uh, and then we have the population study like the Kessler study. Any, anything that came to your mind with regards to those? I noticed that they were different, but I'm not sure I had any specific take home for that. Anything from you two? I, I think that it just refers back to the main purpose of the Akeem article, which is discovering what within each of those studies might be contributing to the high variation in the data that they're receiving. And the Akeem article had a variety of variables that they assessed and almost all of them impacted whether or not uh, the data was increased or decreased. And so in the future, having uh, a more standard s set of rules or um, guidelines to follow when diagnosing or anything along those lines would be really important. I'm trying to remember, did the Falama article talk about uh, genetics and race? I think one of the articles yes. that I didn't give to you guys might have mentioned that the differences in prevalence that we have seen might be related to where the studies were done. I think the uh, studies that were done in Africa but not South Africa showed a much lower prevalence of OCD overlapping schizophrenia, but when you got into Caucasian populations that those numbers seemed to change somewhat. And I don't know that we ran across any, any studies that had uh, Asian populations that, w that we found. No, mine didn't, my study mentioned there was no difference in sex marital status, 
education or age of onset, but it didn't mention anything about race. Yeah, I, I think I saw, I, I remember reading that. That might have been one of the first ones we looked at. Um, all right, so just as one final note here, uh, I think the original request was what about um, the prevalence, or what about OCD and schizoaffective disorder? Now, we do have a few more articles that I think are going to be coming up that allow us to speak with a little bit more information. I found three articles on a search about the prevalence of OCD with schizoaffective disorder. I was only able to access one of those three, and that one actually didn't only have OCD and schizoaffective disorder. It actually lumped uh, schizoaffective disorder and uh, schizophrenia for the prevalence of OCD within that, that combined population of psychosis. And I think uh, you mentioned earlier, Hope, uh, Hope Cheyenne, that uh, the Akeem article noted, made the notation that they had lumped both uh, schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. Does that sound right? That's correct. Okay. All right. Anything else uh, that we may have missed that we should uh, be thinking about, Amanda? I know that a lot of this, you kind of got pulled in very last minute with some of the, your components, so I tried to not put you on the spot too much. But I want to see if you have any take-home thoughts for us. Right now, I'm, I think this is a very interesting topic. I think I learned a lot today, and I think I have some reading to do myself on these articles. I, I don't know. You heard the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got your own topic coming up, and you want to tell us, uh, do you want to give us a little bit of a hint as to what's ahead of us with your topic? I think it's a topic I'm very excited for. I think a lot of psychology focuses on abnormal and one thing I would like to focus on is positive psychology and how we approach that. So that's coming up. I love it. We have uh, done some work on the recovery model. There is some overlap between those models and uh, I'm looking forward to any of the models that talk about what we sometimes refer to on the unit as the adaptive self. How do you find the person that is successful and build on that rather than constantly talking about the things that don't seem to be working and focusing on that. Does that sound about right? That sounds very good. I'm on the right track so far then. Good to <laughs> we'll hear. We'll find out. <laughs> uh, probably not. I'll probably have to read a whole bunch of articles to catch up now. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Cheyenne, do you want to give your uh, take home? No, I just uh, look forward to the future discussions we're going to have, especially on the differences with patients who exhibit symptoms from both schizophrenia and OCD versus patients who may just exhibit one or the other. And um, I think it's just really important to look out for the symptoms of um, the OCS symptoms. I just said symptoms twice. But uh, in our that, patients so. <laughs> that, uh, that do uh, have a diagnosis for schizophrenia. I, I want to emphasize that if I can, put a little punctuation on that. One of the things that was really surprising to me is the the why box, and, and I, I'm going to give you guys an assignment, by the way. I'm going to have you go work with one specific patient on our unit, no names, because this is um, uh, HPI stuff, right? Yep. But I'm going to have you do a why box with that patient. I don't know that you guys have seen one yet, but it's fairly straightforward. You can print them off on the uh, on a number of websites. It's the young or the Yell Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. Oh, yep. And you guys read about that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. One of the things, going back to your point, is that most patients with schizophrenia 
seemed to be scoring on that Y box in at least some manner that would be uncomfortable, right? It, it was really surprising to me on, on that one graph. You guys are both shaking your head. You remember seeing it where uh, at one point it's a diagnostic thing, right? They have OCD, but the, the numbers decrease somewhat, but it's still there a lot and they don't have OCD suddenly, but they still have the symptoms. So I really like your point. Hope you're the uh, star of the show today. Um, take home from you. My takeaway just reading these articles is that the prevalence rates were all over the place. So I think that's something that we, there's a lot more studies that need to be done in the future because in the past we've looked at them as two separate, you know, illnesses and maybe they aren't, maybe they occur simultaneously. So. Very interesting. Um, I, I'm going to, I, I had you give me your take home. What was the thing you noticed most? What was something you learned, not necessarily about uh, OCD and schizophrenia, but what was something you learned in the process of doing this assignment? That a lot of, I guess, psych stuff is still kind of up in the air. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you're under the impression that the data in other fields is better? No, the whole, the whole <laughs> medical, medical field is up in the air because, I mean, as, as time goes on, we get better. We get better. Yeah, so. I think one of the things I would, I would follow up on that with the question or what you said, because I, I agree that there's, in fact, there's a, um, it's very difficult to replicate the psychology literature. I think the, the psychiatry literature, which is, I think, more often focused on medications and biological processes, has uh, some difficulties with it as well. All of the literature we're exploring to find better, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that I, th I hear, here's the question I think that speaks to what you're saying. Had I given you just the Akeem article and said, what's the prevalence of OCD and schizophrenia what would you have told me a week ago if you had only read that? That was your article, so what was it? It's like 13%, right? 13, okay, yeah. And if I say that now, if I say what's the prevalence of OCD and schizophrenia, what do you say? We have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I, that's the answer I love, but you at least know what the ranges are, right? You have a sense of what kinds of situations create what kinds of numbers, and I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why I have this assignment is it's not necessarily at this point about helping students uh, prepare for the shelf exam that's done in the first two minutes of the podcast and you did a great job with that by the way Thank you. Um, I think the point of the podcast now are how do you look at the literature and how does it benefit you later and most of the students have been commenting on that now I think uh, whether good or bad uh, same question for you what's the thing that came out of this podcast that had nothing to do with the rotation psychiatry something that surprised you can I, like, spill a fun fact that I saw on Please. one of them? Please. Um, on one of the articles, there was an idea that uh, obsessions was actually more commonly uh, the symptom that people sought help for, not the compulsions. And that was mind-blowing to me because I felt that the the compulsions of OCS or OCD would be more, um, warrant someone to go in and seek help, but they stated that obsessions were. Can I add a fun fact to that? Yeah. I think one of the articles I also looked at, and I want to say it was the Kessler article, because it also looks at uh, who seeks treatment. If I understood correctly, 
in many cases, it's not the voices that send people in for treatment. It's the anxiety about the voices. It's the other conditions that bring people in quite often. Yes, you, you saw something that, similar? Yeah, that was in my article too, that they don't seek help for OCD, but depression and anxiety are both. Right, so yes. it wasn't even the OCD that sent symptoms in with the phloma. I think that was just the Dunedin study, right, where they only looked at OCD. That was an overlap study. Yep. But but all, all sorts of interesting things about what drives people for treatment, right? And I think as physicians, if we're thinking about the recovery model, uh, if somebody comes in and they say, hey, I need help with depression, and you assess them and they have tons of OCD, you might still say, let's treat the depression, right? Let's let's figure out how to help you. Uh, what a wonderful podcast. It went much longer than I thought. We did, I think, a pretty good job circumscribing the information we wanted to cover. So uh, the next one, I think we're going to try and do similarly, where it's a more circumscribed uh, bit of information. We're going to have some follow-up podcasts on uh, on schizophrenia and OCD, and we'll bring in schizoaffective disorder where we can, as I understand correctly. And then the last thing I would add is team out. You guys are supposed to say team out, remember? No. I haven't prepped you guys for this. Let's try it again. Team out. Team, team out. out. That was much better. <laughs> <laughs>